What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Sam Dickinson. Sam is a founder and principal at Keeler Markwood Group, a Westchester-based development company focused on ground-up and value-add deals. He started the company with his friend, Matthew Tripp, in 2016. Previously, he was one of the founding team members at Conatus Capital Management in Greenwich, Connecticut, where besides equity analysis and trade execution, he helped set up the company's risk management framework. He started his career as a chartered financial analyst at Goldman Sachs Asset Management, and we'll be talking about the Peakscale Brewery, a major renovation and redevelopment project he was working on in the Hudson Valley of New York. More broadly, we will talk about how a good development strategy and design can make the difference between food service venues that survive and those that perhaps do not. So thank you so much for being here with us, Sam. Pleasure to be here. My first podcast, I'm going to be out there with that and uh, excited to do it. So thanks for having me. First time for everything. So you began your career in hedge funds and spent 20 years as a trader. Could you explain to us what you did and how your interest in real estate grew over that time? And for those perhaps that may not be that into finance, could you explain what a hedge fund actually is? Yes. So most people invest via uh, mutual funds. ETFs, they're familiar with, you know, picking stocks. I started off in the business in an investment management firm. I started off in basically operations and uh, worked my way up. I started off making $20,000 a year and reconciling trades and doing fund accounting and basically all the unglamorous stuff. And uh, throughout the years, worked my, you know, my way up the ladder and uh, eventually found my way onto a uh, trading desk at a hedge fund. And so Mm -hmm. hedge funds are alternative investment funds and typically are open only to sophisticated investors. And that really only means that you have a lot of money and you can afford to lose money. So hedge funds also have a lot of latitude to do what a mutual fund or some other more publicly accessible type of investment vehicle can, can do. So that mainly includes shorting, which means borrowing a stock and selling it with the expectation that it's going to decrease in value. So 
the funds that I worked for were equity long short funds, meaning we bought stocks we thought would appreciate in value and shorted stocks that would decline in value. Most of the funds that I worked for were uh, global in nature, and meaning we invested not just in the US, but in European markets, Asian markets, a whole range of emerging markets. We also dabbled in non-equity types of instruments like currencies and credit products and that sort of thing. So this isn't a finance podcast, but <laughs> so I won't go too too much into the detail on that. But but you know, honestly, Sam, from what you've described so far, it sounds like an absolutely apt and wonderful preparation for being a developer because so much of being a developer is the unglamorous stuff. It's mopping up the floors when there's a flood, uh, making sure all the doors are locked and the windows are closed and babysitting and all that other stuff. And then the expression about having some money and then being able to lose a lot of money is absolutely what development's all about. So. <laughs> so for sure. And actually, if I were to do it all over again, I don't think I'd change anything because I okay. think I think having that experience in the most basic aspects of the business and operations was just as valuable as doing mm-hmm. all the things I did towards the, the latter end of that part of my career. So I think there's a ton of value in doing all parts of, of the job. Mm-hmm and getting your hands dirty. So uh, I think it's a really appropriate analogy. You know, so I, I think you asked, how did that blossom into into real estate? Mm-hmm. I always had an interest in real estate. In fact, when I was in high school, I took some architecture classes. And I think somewhere, I don't know if I have it here, but <laughs> I, I, I built a model, you know, scale model of a house I designed out of cardboard. Mm-hmm. And it was something I took a lot of pride in. I kept it till this day. It's not not in the room, but I have it somewhere. And uh, it was also just something that fascinated me. But you know, when I started in college, I went down the finance path mm-hmm. and always had an interest in that as well. But you know, I did the finance thing and the hedge fund thing for twenty plus years, mm-hmm. and there were a, a pretty wide range of reasons why I thought it was time to do something else. The industry had changed a lot. Mm-hmm. I had career burnout. I was trading the globe, you know, coming home at 6 p.m. and then getting back in front of the desk at 7 p.m. to trade Australia and then Mm -hmm. trade Hong Kong and India. And so, you know, was it addictive? um, It was exciting. It was high pressure. The thing people ask me what I miss about that job, and I I think I miss the people the most, Mm. the relationships I had with people, obviously started new relationships in this career. So I would say it was just exciting. There was something uh, new every day. That's one of the things about trading that I loved is that mm-hmm. there was never the same thing in any one day. So uh, it was just the amount of work and the, and the expectations. You know, you, you burn out and I'm in my late 40s now. And mm-hmm. when I left the business, I was in my mid 40s. And that's actually pretty old for that business. Mm-hmm. So when I left the business, I took some time off and... As time went by, it occurred to me more and more that this wasn't something I wanted to go back to. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was building a house in Cape Cod. We had bought a property, gone through the entire process, entitlements, design, construction, budgeting, all the things you see with commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated, just absolutely fascinated by the process. And I said, wow, if this is, there's a way I can make money doing this. It would be, I'd have a blast and it would just be a lot of fun. And it would be something refreshing for me to do. So that led me down the road of trying to figure out how can I pivot my career 
from finance into real estate. So mm-hmm. a friend of mine who's an architect introduced me to a, a bunch of people in his circle, including yourself. That's true. And- yeah. <laughs> I think we met at the Intercontinental. Yeah. Uh, that's when I was working at Extel. That's right. Yep. So um, a mutual friend of ours introduced you and I, as you recall, mm-hmm. and he also introduced me to a ton of other people in the business. And I tried to figure out, hey, what can a guy with no real estate experience do Mm -hmm. to get his feet wet in real estate? And the one thing that people kind of said over and over again, and you probably said the same thing to me, was uh, you just need to do something. You Mm -hmm. need to get exposure, and that's the way to learn. And that could be anything from buying a duplex or a small multifamily Mm -hmm. investment property or buying an investment unit like we've talked about. Mm -hmm to doing something bigger. And so I came to the conclusion that if I'm going to do something like similar to what I did in my house in Cape Cod, which is building something from the ground up, why not do it with a little bit more scale and find, surround myself with people that can help me succeed? Mm Because I clearly don't have the expertise to do it myself. So through that networking process, I met a gentleman, Matthew Trent, who's my current partner at Keeler Markwood. And we discovered we both had very similar ambitions. I mean, he had the construction background. He had mm-hmm. the background as an owner's rep doing condo projects in Manhattan. And he was a Westchester guy like I am in mm-hmm. Westchester County and wanted to do things in our own backyard. So we came across an opportunity and he had the uh, experience in the construction field and building things. I had the finance expertise and I had a little money that I could put towards the project. We'd still have to raise money from investors, which we ultimately did. Mm -hmm. And so we said, let's go for it. And so the rest is history. There's been a lot of other steps along the way that have helped me develop as a real estate professional. And I'm clearly still developing and have a lot to learn. But I feel like in kind of the four years that I've been doing this, Mm-hmm. I've just had exponential growth and feel a lot more confident in what I know versus when I came in, have a lot more to bring to the table than than when I started. I think what you described about uh, being a Westchester guy was one of the things that I particularly found as being incredibly important in starting out my own development business as well is to identify a particular area that you want to be the, the king or the queen or the the royalty of and basically know it up, down, left, right, front, center. Uh, And I found that that is the way that you can make the case for why someone should take the risk and invest with someone without a track record versus, say, a mid-sized firm that might be working in that market and 10 other markets in that area. So I think that's definitely an apt uh, kind of path to go down. And I think you might be interested knowing I was reading New York Magazine recently, and there is a big focus on the change in work culture at a number of the large banks downtown, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly for their employees that are in their first or fourth year at the firm. And it's wildly different than uh, than at least my friends described it as. And I'm guessing that your experience uh, is as well. I'm sure. And that's absolutely the case. I think the expectations have changed for the better for people that are in that yep. kind of line of work. But another point that you made before that, uh, which I want to touch on, is being an expert in a certain area. Mm-hmm. So knowing kind of most of, you know, basically knowing almost on a block by block basis, a couple of towns or cities and having a deep understanding 
of the real estate markets in those cities is super important. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember this, you gave me one piece of advice that I took to heart and it was super helpful. I think it was that first meeting that you and I had together, which was make a point to either attend or listen to a lot of the public meetings. Mm -hmm. So planning board meetings, common council meetings, board of trustee meetings. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that shape the policy mm -hmm. in those towns and villages and cities. And uh, so you get to know the players. You also get to know what the process is like through watching other people either fail or succeed. Mm -hmm. And that helps, <laughs> <laughs> it helps arm you. It's like Shark Tank, basically. <laughs> basically, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you go in knowing what the expectations are. Yeah. You know, there's been municipalities where I've seen they always ask for solar on the projects. So if you want to come in with a project and you know they're going to ask for solar, you should probably make an effort to provide solar. Mm -hmm. So that was hugely helpful. And that's a practice that I've kind of, you know, undertaken as I get to know new municipalities mm -hmm. and also continue to work in them. So let me ask you this. So as you, you made the decision, you uh, met Matt and you had the, the plan of what you wanted to go forward on. Assuming you met you met him over beers on a Wednesday, what was Thursday like? What was like the first couple of days? Like, what did you do to get started? So we had our first meeting in Manhattan. I think we met at uh, Le Pan Cotidien and, okay. uh, and had some Impressive avocado French pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> I took French in middle school. So, okay. so we met there and it was just you know, we were both kind of young guys eager to do different things. And he wanted to branch out and be more in development and not doing, you know, as an owner's rep, he does development for other people effectively. Mm -hmm. So we had a common desire to, to do our own thing and do it in our own backyard. So that was the first meeting. And the second or third meeting was probably him calling me, telling me, that he had a property in downtown White Plains where I live, mm -hmm. and he's two towns over, town over from White Plains, and said, there's a property for sale. It's a block off of the main drag in the town, mm -hmm. close to a lot of important institutions in the city of White Plains, and it's worth a look. And that was exciting and terrifying at the same time, mm -hmm. because I really had just come out of the hedge fund world. And I think like I've said to you before, the only thing I had going for me is I had saved up some money, but not a ton of money. And so I could bring some capital to a project as mm -hmm. equity, certainly couldn't finance a project on my own. And so idea of jumping into a ground up development project was terrifying. And mm -hmm. I didn't know Matt that well at that point. So we spent some time getting to know each other better from mm -hmm. that point on, I am risk averse generally on my hedge fund days. As you mentioned mm -hmm. at the beginning, I was in risk management. So I always thought about what could go wrong. What's the downside? Everything could go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, Including and, a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, our, our mutual friend who introduced us really put it well to me and said, you don't even know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, that's right. I don't. And so I got to know Matt better, but we didn't have a ton of time. And I said, let's just go for it. And so him and I ended up funding that acquisition ourselves. 
it was two small parcels of land. So it was enough that we can fund ourselves with cash. Mm -hmm. But we knew there would come a time where we were going to have to go out and raise money from investors because that was basically, we were taking on all the equity ourselves and that Mm -hmm. wasn't sustainable, but we weren't in a position to get a loan in in that period of time. And so we said, let's just go for it and uh, take a shot and fund it ourselves, which we did. And you know, the determination was made at that point that the highest and best use for the property would be to be medical office because it was close to a medical institution. Mm-hmm. So we went down that path and, and that was the beginning of it. But it was certainly a leap of faith. And I was fortunate enough that uh, in, in my position, my wife was still working. And mm-hmm. so she's been the breadwinner for a good part of these years. I've fortunately started to generate some more income as I become more capable mm-hmm. and can uh, do things like consulting work. Yep. And I know, you know, you and I have obviously worked on some things together mm-hmm. in the consulting arena. And I've built that business out for myself a little bit more subsequently. So, you know, found ways to pay the bills, but you know, I truly would not have been able to do it if it wasn't for my wife's support either mm-hmm. having her, her patience and her uh, willingness to kind of let me go down this road has been, been huge and not, you know, not everybody has that. I think that's actually, that's absolutely an important point, whether it's a spouse or parents or some other kind of setup where you're able to just borrow chunks of cash or just not have to worry about certain things that can get you over those, those leaps uh, in the beginning. I probably say one of the most important things as well is people that come from, kind of rarefied air of schools and jobs and industries and that we know a lot of in, in Metro New York City. I think what I found is there's often this desire to look for, right, where to be like um, acknowledgement of their intelligence and their worth or their greatness from other people and seeking that out all the yeah. time. And when you end up uh, working on your own, there's no one is your cheerleader. No one is there saying, great, good job. <laughs> so each day, you don't yeah. just have to wake up just like the movie to help. And it's like, you are smart. You are important. <laughs> and people like you. <laughs> you got to learn to pat, pat yourself on the back a lot. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was very humble and just, I think I went into things pretty openly just mm-hmm. saying, hey, this is what I this is the value I bring right now. And in some cases, people had to convince me, hey, mm-hmm. you have more value than you think. So, yep. you know, for instance, my finance background, you touched on the beginning. You know, if you're looking at a stock or a bond or a piece of real estate, you're basically analyzing discounted cash flows. Mm-hmm. And so it's conceptually the same. It's different in kind of the mechanics and operationally how a piece of real estate works versus kind of some sort of securitized product. But in a lot of ways, they're pretty similar. And so once you kind of understand the structure of how a real estate deal works and how an operating budget works and things of that nature, it's really not that different. But, you know, to take a step back and, you know, it's been great having my wife's support, but it's also it has a lot of ups and downs. You know, Mm. it's just it's not it's not easy. She's working her tail off trying to support the family. And I'm telling her it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You know, this 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 project in <laughs> White Plains has been four years in the in the making. Almost there. Almost yeah, there. almost there. And, she, and yeah, 
I don't blame her for having a little disbelief. You know, yeah. at times, you know, there's times where she says to me, no, I, I don't know if I believe this is happening. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can say now we've been down a long road, but we're pretty close to making the project mm -hmm. and White Plains start to come to fruition. And what I would say is this, is having been in this industry for, for a while, for now 15 years or so, it's that it's always better to play the long game and be honest and be direct with people. Because particularly if you're working in a single market, everyone talks Everyone knows each other. And if you go down that path of attempting to be somebody that you're not, you're going to be called out for it pretty quick and it's going to be really hard to do business. For sure. And I guess I'm the type of person also that just um, I can't live as a fraud. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I am who I am and I'm still learning a lot. I think I've made a lot of strides in the last couple of years. But, you know, that's why it's uh, smart to surround yourself with people that know what they're doing and are complementary in terms of their skill set. So Matt and I are great partners because I have the financial expertise, which he lacks, and he knows construction well, being a general contractor mm -hmm. and also doing development for other people. I also think it's interesting that people, you know, you, you mentioned there's low barrier century. And when I told some people, you know, friends of mine and people that I know around town, what I'm planning to do, they look at me and say, how hard can it be? <laughs> and there's some truth to it, but there, it's also just completely false. So yeah. you're right. Anybody can do it. And mm -hmm. if you're, if you kind of roll up your sleeves and do things intelligently and trust smart people, mm -hmm. you'll probably do okay. But it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, municipalities can be notoriously difficult mm -hmm. to work with. It's not just, you know, just because you own a piece of land, you're not entitled to build whatever you want to build on that mm -hmm. piece of land. So it's a tough process, but it's been super gratifying and and fun to do something different and, and learn about it. So let's talk about Peekskill. So yep. Peekskill is a former industrial city located on a major river, the Hudson. And you spent some time in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania when you were at Lehigh, uh, which is campus right next to the massive factory of Bethlehem Steel, also on a major river, the Lehigh. Uh, could you compare these two places for us? Yeah, I think they're both kind of fascinating in that they have some a rich industrial history, obviously. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, I find it somewhat depressing, I guess, in the sense that, you know, you had areas that were proud industrial towns with booming businesses. And that business is just no longer feasible in those areas, which is, I guess, part and parcel with economic development. Things change and become more globalized. But, you know, driving when I would drive to Lehigh in my college days, you'd get off the highway. I think it's 78 mm -hmm. and you'd probably drive about 15, 10, 15 minutes from the highway to the campus. Mm -hmm. And you would drive past miles and miles of steel mills. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, imagine driving down Main Street. And on the left side, there's residential areas. And then on the right side, it's steel mills. Mm -hmm. It's not pushed off in the corner mm -mm. of the town. It's, it's part of the town. The town is built around Bethlehem Steel. And I just was always fascinated. The steel mill in Bethlehem was still operational when I went to Lehigh. And, you know, you could see... You can see activity. You can drive past and see blast furnaces with, you know, bright orange mm -hmm. and red, 
you know, liquid steel flowing. So it was really pretty amazing. And um, fortunately, they preserved pieces of the steel mill. So the, mm-hmm. the, the steel mills there are now closed. And they preserved smokestacks and made arts, you know, art museums or facilities mm-hmm. out of parts of them. I think there's a casino part of it now. So, you know, that's America. But it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the, the parallel with Peekskill is that, you know, dotted along the Hudson River in the early 20th century to mid 20th century were just industrial factories and mm-hmm. The river was an important piece of having a factory for transportation. And, you know, sadly, in some cases, they would discharge water into the the rivers. And so it was just a convenience aspect. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of really cool old industrial properties that still line the Hudson River in a lot of these towns. And um, a lot of towns like Peekskill or, you know, Beacon's a great example to the north have been... I guess, uh, forgotten for some period of time. They weren't close to the city or as close as people would want to be to the city to enable commuting. So you started to see a revival in places like Beacon because A, it's a great place to escape from the city, but B, it's also a really accessible location for all things in the wilderness. There's tons of hiking. There's Bear Mountain not Mm -hmm. far from there. And it's it's not that far from the city. The Peekskill train station is an hour north of, you know, train ride from Grand Central, uh, roughly. But these towns have all this old industrial architecture, old factories, some of which have been repurposed, some that have been torn down. And, you know, General Motors had a, had a plant in Terrytown for mm-hmm. years. I remember as a kid driving over the Tappan Zee Bridge and looking out and well, you know, seeing minivans rolling out of the factory there. IBM also has uh, offices there, right? They do in Armonk. So they have mm-hmm. a huge campus, uh, not on the river, but up in, in northern Westchester, mm-hmm. parts of which have been sold off. So there's just a lot of really cool architecture. And now you're seeing a renaissance happening in those places. So mm-hmm. again, using Beacon as an example, because Beacon's a little further along the way, they've basically you know, awakened to the fact that they have this old industrial architecture and put it to new uses, building loft style apartments. And uh, now Beacon's one of the, you know, one of the fastest growing towns in that area and has a lot of migration from people in New York City and Brooklyn. And you see a lot of weekend traffic coming from those areas. So we see the same thing in Peekskill. Mm-hmm. The property we acquired was an old warehouse building. It sat vacant for 10 years at one point, or maybe even more than that. And then the Peekskill Brewery, which had been operating uh, down the street for a few years, was growing and ended up moving into that building. Mm -hmm. They occupied two of the four floors. And part of the plan for us is to help them expand into other parts of the building. So we acquired that building, basically 50% vacant, but the brewery has other plans and we got to know the brewery well and support you know, helping them expand. So tell us a little bit more about the development strategy for this particular property and how you uh, came to decide on that, that development strategy. Because it sounds like the, uh, the Peak School Brewery had some intentions of what they wanted to do too. I think first and foremost, on the most basic level, what really appealed to us was we just like the location and the architecture. And 
Uh, ironically, when we first started looking at Peekskill, we were there about three years ago. This was the first place we went. We met up with a local attorney and who knew the town fairly well and wanted to you know, get some insight on, mm-hmm. on what was happening. And he suggested we meet at the Peekskill Brewery. And that was a little bit of foreshadowing and not coincidentally because Peekskill Brewery is, is kind of a staple in the community. It's a common meeting place. It's right near the train station. So people come up from the city mm-hmm. on weekends to go hiking. They all meet at the brewery. Bike cycling groups come up, meet at the brewery. So it was a natural meeting place. You know, so we looked at it in its most basic terms as just a really great piece of real estate in a location in the Peekskill waterfront that's kind of detached from the downtown area. So the downtown area is way up the hill in Peekskill, and that's where the main street is. The waterfront area is is less active, but obviously a beautiful location. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you go to the, especially to the upper floors of the brewery building, uh, you have great views of the Hudson River. You're a block walk to the river itself. You're a block walk to the train station. So from a location standpoint, it was ideal. The second thing was in buying the, the building, we said, even if we don't find a tenant for the remaining spaces, or if we can't figure out a plan to generate some revenue with the brewery from the other spaces, we're going to get a nice yield at a reasonable acquisition price. So mm-hmm. just with the brewery in place, we can make 6 to 7% yields. And so as long as we find some other uses, if the brewery doesn't want to expand or we can't find a way for the brewery to, to expand the building, mm-hmm. there's there's upside potential to that. So first and foremost, it's just you know location and attractive basis, really. So those were the two really important pieces for us. Excellent. And then how did you get involved with this particular deal? Like, how did this come to fruition? Yeah, so this is interesting. It was exciting when I, I, I got the call from my partner, Matt. And he said, listen, we have this opportunity, the brewery buildings for sale. Mm-hmm. And obviously knew it. We'd been looking at Peekskill for a while. And it was the first place we, we ever went in Peekskill. So the owner had a right of first refusal to acquire the building, uh, but they needed a partner. So they started a process where they met with a bunch of potential partners who could go in to, to acquire the building with them. Speed dating. Speed dating. Yeah. So it it was important to them because they didn't want to have a landlord who wasn't invested in their business, Mm -hmm. not necessarily just from an economics perspective, but just uh, personally invested and want to see them succeed. And so Mm -hmm. we knew the brewery pretty well before we actually met them. And after spending more time with them, we loved their story. We loved how they pivoted during COVID and succeeded Mm -hmm. and, and kept themselves alive. And it's a beloved institution and peak skills. So we wanted the same things for them as they wanted. And so after spending a lot of time with them, we said, Hey, this is a good fit. They felt good about it. We felt good about it. But then it became a race against the clock because we had a very short amount of time under the terms of the ROFO. So right of, uh, well, it was a ROFO, right of first mm-hmm. refusal. So they had a, a potential buyer And so we had to put together a deal in a matter of three months, 90 days Mm -hmm. to get the deal done, raise money, structure something with the brewery that made sense for them and made sense for ourselves. So we got there pretty quickly and then it was a race against the clock. 
Okay. And then from that point, so you closed on the deal and give us a perspective of the timeline from you have the keys in your hand to when the, the project will be complete and the redevelopment done. Yeah. So we've, we did a lot of work during the period between the contract signing and the closing. Mm-hmm. So we brought in design consultants. We brought in engineers. We brought in restaurant consultants. Who are some of those designers and engineers and consultants? So my partner, Hamad, has a relationship with a designer who does a lot of dining and entertainment venues Okay, and put together a lot of ideas that we can implement in terms of improving the existing spaces and also building out the spaces that are not currently occupied. Mm-hmm. And so just gave some insight and some inspiration into what could be done and what kind of very rough budgets would be to do those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And then... Matt has a, a friend named Bradford Thompson, who's a James Beard awarding, uh, award-winning chef mm-hmm. and also now a restaurant consultant. And so he knows how restaurants run and operate. And we had him come in to look at what the potential was for this and also to, frankly, give a, a rubber stamp on the operators. Mm-hmm. And so we had a sense that these were guys that knew what they were doing. They were very passionate most importantly, he came back with very confirmatory feedback that mm-hmm. these guys are doing the right things. He came back with some important changes that could be made, not earth shattering, but things that could make the business better. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as developers and guys who aren't the restaurant business, we wanted some confirmation that they knew what they were doing. So mm-hmm. bringing in those professionals early on was not only helpful to get us confidence in closing the deal, but Mm -hmm. also to help lay the groundwork for what was going to happen. And so getting back to your question, we have roughly a six-month timeline that we're working on, and that is comprised of a few things. So we had some base building work that had to be completed. There were things that the building just needed that hadn't been done by prior ownership, things like elevator work, exterior work, plumbing work. And so those sorts of things are going to get done first. And then the next order of business for us is going to be uh, working on improving some of the existing spaces. You know, they occupy the first floor, which is a tap room. The second floor is a dining room and kind of a small private party room. And those just need a little bit of a refresh. But the biggest thing that happened with them in terms of the business during COVID was that they pivoted to converting their outdoor parking lot into an outdoor beer garden. Oh, awesome. So the beer garden turned out to be massively successful, but it was done on a kind of a temporary basis. Mm-hmm. So we're we're going to look to work with them to make that permanent. And that's just a huge opportunity for them to have additional space mm-hmm. to generate more income. So we want to make that permanent. So those are the things in the next six months we're going to be focused on. Once we get that done, things are running smoothly. We're going to look at options for the third and fourth floor, which is going to be a a surprise. I don't think it's going to be surprising to people, but we're just necessarily talking yet about what our plans are for the rest of that building with them. I got it. Okay. So sequential. So when listeners want to come up to see the project, they should come up around July 4th, you think? That gives you six months? Yeah. Well, I, I think there's going to be a lot happening before that. And certainly the beer garden, we hope to have that ready to go and completed before you know, it starts to warm up in the spring. 
Excellent. So I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know that we will be having Andrew Regenstrike of Housing and Neighborhood Development Services on the show next month. He is the second affordable housing developer we'll be having on the show, and I promise uh, we'll help you understand how to make tax credits great again. Head to American Building Podcast to check out past episodes and to subscribe to the pod via any of the major listing platforms, including iTunes. Speaking of valuable real estate incentives, uh, Redis is a new technology company that is innovating around the age-old problem of financing real estate deals. This machine learning-driven platform is an end-to-end solution for real estate professionals like Andrew, Sam, and myself looking to unlock the $100 billion of tax credits and other real estate incentives that are given out every year in the U.S. Learn more about it at redist.us. And finally, I renovated my parents' home in Princeton this past year. And whenever they have their Indian auntie and uncle friends come over for a socially distanced chai, they always remark about the stunningly beautiful floor and wall tile. If you are planning your own renovation this year, check out Garden State Tile at gstile.com or in person at their multiple locations in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So taking a step back from this deal, talk to us about how mixing uses in your redevelopment projects work and why you think it's a good idea. Yeah, so we've looked at mixed use from a number of different angles. So one is actually mixed use within one property. Mm -hmm. So in our White Plains project, there was a period of time where we actually looked at mixing workforce housing together with medical office, Mm -hmm. which is not necessarily conventional. People have done it, but there was a lot of interesting reasons to do that for that project because it started off as a medical because the staff, office building. right? They can so having staff nearby, you have a captive audience of potential tenants. Mm-hmm. So that so that obviously makes a lot of sense. But additionally, one of the things we found was that we marketed the property to medical users and weren't in a position to begin development and, con- and construction of the property until we had a tenant. So it's this chicken and the egg sort of situation. So one of the thoughts we had was if we went to a mixed use type of concept, we could have perhaps 50% of the building as multifamily. Mm -hmm. And so that changes the calculus in terms of getting financing, changes the calculus in terms of obviously the returns to the property. So, and then it also just creates diversification. But more broadly, we do like to have a mixture of different uses in our portfolio, because although a lot of people think multifamily is the safest asset mm-hmm. class, there's also a ton of interesting opportunities outside of multifamily. Yep. And so when, when Matt and I started Keeler Markwood, we didn't necessarily have a core competency that we wanted to focus on. We just wanted to be opportunistic. And so mm-hmm. in the case of the medical office building, that was the highest and best use and made the most sense. That has now become a multifamily building because we went through a rezoning process. Mm -hmm. And now it's actually a better project for that, although it's taken a longer period of time to get there. So while we love multifamily, I think the use case for peak skill and the investment case is equally compelling because Mm -hmm. here you have an asset 
with a operator that's been in place for 13 years and has survived probably the worst of shocks that you can have to a business in COVID mm-hmm. and, and come through it hopefully stronger. And this is an asset where we love the operator, we love the going in yield and love the upside opportunity. Well beyond that, 10, 20 years down the road, if there's a change in use and we can do something different with it, we'd love the location. And so we're always going to be supported by just the land value of the property. So we've looked at a lot of other things. I I think industrial has, especially in Westchester, Mm -hmm. where there's not a lot of industrial Mm -hmm. and there's a need for industrial, I'd love to do something there. And so we're, you know, wide open to doing a range of different uses. I think particularly what I'd say is that from my experience, multifamily is the one that tends to be the easiest to build because people understand what an apartment is, what a layout is. But I think that also means that certain high growth markets may be prone to swings in supply that will compress returns. So for example, during the pandemic, uh, particularly in 2021, the NARIT residential index for class A, which is the top 20 MSAs across the country was negative 22. And I think putting all your eggs in that basket of class A luxury multifamily is an incredibly dangerous proposition. And I like the way that you're thinking, which is that their skill sets are different, but also sometimes the skill sets are rather the same in being able to get a multifamily building entitled versus an industrial. And I think that it probably makes for a lot more interesting of a company and an endeavor to be able to work on different different projects like that. Well, I, I also like the fact in, in White Plains, one of the things I like about what we're doing is that there's just been a complete boom in luxury. Mm-hmm. Basically, any new property is just mm-hmm. being branded as luxury. And we're not really doing that. We're doing workforce housing. Mm-hmm. They're smaller spaces, and they're meant to appeal to somebody that works at a hospital that wants to maybe work a 12-hour shift and come Mm -hmm. home and have a clean, safe, modern place to sleep, but doesn't want to spend as much as you'd spend in a luxury building. So Mm -hmm. people in our building are going to be able to save five or $600 versus a comparable studio at another building. And that's meaningful money to most people, especially people in, you know, this income bracket, if you're saving five, six, $7,000 a year. Furthermore, at this point in the economic cycle, if things start to turn and go south, we think that we're going to have much less price elasticity than mm-hmm. other products will have. Yep. In fact, I think we'd be a beneficiary of people saying, okay, I can save five or $600 a month. Mm-hmm. We're going to get traction there. So I, I like the fact that we're different in doing something that has some insulation towards the economic cycles. And then you mentioned earlier some of the the learnings and the challenges that you've had with getting projects entitled. And now looking back over the the four years and the various projects that you've worked on, what are some of the pieces of advice that you would have for new developers on getting projects approved? Yeah, so I think one thing that's really important is just knowing the municipality that you're Mm -hmm. going into. I think it's easy to fall in love with a location and see a town or a city or a village that Mm -hmm looks like it has interesting opportunities. We've spent time in a lot of other towns along the Hudson River, Mm -hmm. more in Southern Westchester, where there's a lot of charm. And, you know, we've seen a couple potential sites that could be compelling. 
And then when we start talking to people that are active <laughs> in development locally, yeah, you, you get what the real story is. And mm -hmm. so I'd rather find out early and do my homework and talk to people that are active in those markets. So I'm not going to name the towns, but mm -hmm. there's towns in lower Westchester along the river that a very basic, small multifamily project can spend three years in front of a planning board. Mm -hmm. And so that's just, you know, the brain damage involved with that and the and the cost just from a pure economic standpoint is just not worth it. Unless you're doing a huge project, mm -hmm. you need to have scale in order for that to be worthwhile. So if you want to do, you know, we've looked at things that are maybe a 15,000 square foot project where mm -hmm. you have, a, a, you know, maybe 10 units or 12 units and it's just not worth the time. So doing mm -hmm. your homework, and knowing the municipality, that gets back to the conversation we had earlier, just, mm -hmm. you know, spending a little time watching the meetings and talking mm -hmm. to people that are active is, is super helpful. A lot of, not a lot, but there's a, uh, there's a number of towns in Westchester now that are coming out with form-based codes. Mm -hmm. And so they're effectively rolling out the welcome mat to developers. And those are the types of places where it's going to be a lot easier to get your project approved. And so... If you can find places that you like that have interesting opportunities, those are a lot easier, obviously. So in Connecticut and in New York, are there particular towns that you really like uh, spending time in that you think have opportunity and upside? Yeah, so obviously we're pretty bullish on Peekskill. Peekskill, you know, one of the reasons we started to look at Peekskill is sometimes when you start to see a flood of activity, it's it's too late. So you need to roll the dice a little bit sometimes and make a bet on mm -hmm. the place that you think is on the come. I hear Brooklyn is really, really good <laughs> these days to invest in. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're trying to find, uh, you know, every, everybody talks about the next Brooklyn. Oh yeah, this is Brooklyn mm -hmm. 20 years ago. I mean, it, it's true, right? Like people say that all the time. So this, you know, so, you know, when you look at places like Peekskill, we went up there and we said, wow, this could be kind of binary, right? Like mm -hmm. it could be really tough if things roll mm -hmm. over, but it could really be, you know, a home run if you get it right. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I think just gave us confidence was post-COVID, seeing that people's behavior patterns in terms of where they're willing to live and where they want to live has changed. And so being in a place like Peekskill, you're not so far away from Manhattan that you can't commute. It's mm -hmm. still roughly an hour, but it's opened up the opportunity for people to be further away. So we like places like Peekskill for that reason. You know, another place that we've spent a good amount of time in is, uh, is Port Chester. Mm. So Port Chester is in a really interesting location. It's basically kind of right on the New York, Connecticut border, all the way on the Eastern part of Westchester. So it's right on parts of it border the Long Island sound, but it's sandwiched between Greenwich and Rye, mm -hmm. you know, two of the wealthiest towns around here. So you have a lot of kind of residual benefit coming from those towns and have a lot of spending from those towns. And then it's competitively priced relative mm -hmm. to those towns. It's also a very short ride to New York City and it's got the Capitol Theater. So mm -hmm. the Capitol Theater, you know, is a, is a well-known historic theater that best known for its performances by the Grateful Dead back in, you know, seventies, eighties. Tons of shows is one of the dead's, you know, favorite places to perform in terms of small venues. Mm -hmm. So it's got a pretty rich history. 
and they get a lot of really cool acts. So people from around the area love to go to Porchester to the Capitol Theater. So in Porchester just put in a form-based code. So now they're getting with the times. It was mm-hmm. a really tough place to do development. We're still looking for something to do in Porchester. So we'd mm-hmm. love to find an opportunity there, but we love the potential there. You know, you see what's happening in big cities like White Plains and Yonkers Mm -hmm. and New Rochelle. Those places are exploding. And Portchester, until the last year or two, has kind of been left behind. But now with the foreign-based code, a lot of projects are getting approved and you're actually starting to see people finally building. Yeah, those are a couple of the places. We obviously love White Plains. We'd love to find other places in White Plains. We're in an opportunity zone in White Plains. So our, our... our project there's actually going to be an opportunity zone fund. We'd love to find other opportunity zone projects in White Plains. Same thing with Porchester, with mm-hmm. OZ. So those are places that we find really interesting. Done some stuff in New Rochelle. You and I worked on some mm-hmm. things in New Rochelle together. New Rochelle is another town or city actually with a form-based code. And so they make it really easy to get projects approved. They're starting to see a lot of construction. They've approved over 6,000 units. I'd say maybe a third of those have been actually built so far, but... A chunk of that is with uh, RxR, right? Yeah. So RxR was named the master developer. Mm -hmm. And I think they're doing over a billion dollars of new projects there. So, you know, it's it's interesting and transformational for a place like New Rochelle, Mm -hmm. which for a long time just was stagnant. And for decades you didn't see anything happening and now it's really booming i mean you know seeing a lot of buildings going up all over new rochelle so it sounds like uh, some of the things that you've mentioned are beautiful interesting historic buildings as assets really strong infrastructure in terms of transportation and access in and out of places and nearness to a major metropolitan area and then also relatively welcoming or a changing entitlement scheme in terms of uh, city government being more welcoming to developers. And I think that some of those dynamics exist uh, not too far away on the Delaware River uh, between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So I spent a little time there. Those are towns like Frenchtown, Milford and Stockton, New Jersey, New Hope, Upper Black Eddy in Pennsylvania. And I think that that's just an example that the dynamic that, that you described is something that uh, folks can probably find all across America in little pockets of places that meet a lot of those requirements that you're talking about, uh, which I think makes uh, the idea of developing really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned those towns you've mentioned are not household names, right? When you Mm -hmm. look at suburban development. So the fact that we're talking about that in itself, I think is pretty fascinating. There's just Mm -hmm. been a, a much greater willingness to look at all sorts of areas when I think about development in the New York City area, you know, we're obviously focused on Westchester. Mm-hmm. And for people that don't know Westchester, right? Westchester is kind of 30 to 50 minutes north of New York City, 30 mm-hmm. to 60 minutes, something like that. So it's a true suburb. But once you start going further north, like north mm-hmm. of Interstate 84, right? You're going to places like Fishkill and, mm-hmm. and those types of, you know, those places are booming now. And I think it's interesting that that's part of the conversation as are the, the places that you just mentioned. I think the reality is that for the number of times that people have told me before the pandemic, oh, I just bought a piece of property in Hoboken or Jersey City and I'm thinking of doing like a four unit. I'm like, uh-huh. 
Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think now that people don't obviously don't have to go into Manhattan five days a week or, or some to a hive clip, that places like these, you realize that the quality of life is so amazing. For example, you mentioned uh, theaters and dining, all these other things that make it such that being two and a half hours away, two hours away, isn't a big deal if you're only going into the city once a week, that's it. So, uh, or zero a week, <laughs> so, which might be preferable. You know, on that point, I have friends that are looking to buy homes right now. And there's absolutely a willingness, if even if you're going three days a week or two mm-hmm. days a week in the city, it changes the, the mathematics in terms of where you're willing to live. You know, people can tolerate doing two or three days with an hour and a half train ride each way, which is, you know, that's not a short train ride. Mm-hmm. I'm 35 minutes by train to Grand Central. You know, so it's totally true. I mean, you know, this definitely changed the thinking. And I think in that regard, it's positioned Sam and, and your firm extremely well for the years ahead. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Sam. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us please on Instagram. And that's at American Building Podcast. And we all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redis and many of our spectacular guests, just like Sam, on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Sam and I have made donations to Autism Speaks, which gives hope and support to families that are dealing with the challenges of autism. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.